0: This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 3, Episode 6, Scott Free. I would like to thank you for once again joining me for White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. Scott Free first aired on July 12, 2011. It was written by Joe Henderson and directed by Tricia Brock. The team is on the trail of a 20-year-old forger, safecracker, and hacker whose antics elicit comparisons to a young Neil Caffrey. Comparisons which Neil finds annoying. Meanwhile, Mozzie continues to prepare for their eventual disappearance after they can sell the treasures they stole from Vincent Adler. Assuming they are ever able to sell the treasures they stole from Vincent Adler. The episode begins in Neil's apartment. We see Sarah in Neil's bed, and Neil is up making breakfast. Sarah wakes up, gets out of bed wearing one of Neil's shirts, and after some flirty talk, including mentioning the perks of casual exhibitionism in New York, there's a knock on the door. Sarah assumes that it's Mozzie, but Neil dismisses that notion, saying that Lately, he's been knocking in iambic pentameter, to which Sarah sarcastically retorts, or not at all. But it's not Mozzie, it's Peter. Sarah, now wearing Neil's hat as well as a shirt, ducks into the back closet hidden room as Neil answers the door, trying to block access. And although Peter notes that door was locked, with Neil flatly commenting that there's a lot of crime in this city, he barges in anyway. He begins telling Neil about their latest case, but suddenly realizes that there's breakfast on the table. Breakfast for two. As in, Neil and someone else. As in, someone else, not Peter, someone else. Well, Neil isn't happy about the intrusion, so his response is a sarcastic, brilliant deduction, Sherlock sort of comment, which should have been sufficient to get the point across to Peter and maybe speed up the encounter. I had Neil stop there, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to snarkily ask Peter if there's any more brilliant detective skills he wants to try and impress Neil with. So Peter takes Neil up on the challenge. He notes two fresh head imprints on the pillows, champagne in the ice bucket at the foot of the bed, and, oh, what's this, a set of handcuffs? Peter is really sticking it to Neil here, and I'm wondering why. Is Peter suspicious of Neil perhaps being up to something improper illegal questionable because the door was locked and his obvious attempt to keep peter out or is he just in a mood to torment neil for fun realizing that he probably has a woman there probably sarah or has something occurred that we haven't seen and this is an extension of that unseen thing some sort of a conflict or issue between the two i'm not sure i I think peter is inherently suspicious of any sort of suspicious behavior out of neil and, of course, the stolen Nazi sub treasures is an ongoing concern, but I'm also assuming that there's a bit of teasing. I, I think he knows that Sarah is probably there, and so he's just given Neil a bad time about it. Although, and although Peter has shown that he enjoys teasing Neil, it's usually not this mean-spirited, which it seems a bit mean-spirited to me right now. Not sure why, but it does seem that way. Anyway, Sarah emerges from the back of the room, now fully dressed, and she tells Peter that the handcuffs are hers. Neil's teaching me how
1: to pick them. Uh-huh. It's our version of Sudoku in yeah. the afternoon. Uh-huh.
0: And before you ask, I do not have a drawer here or a toothbrush.
1: Did I ask?
0: We're in that awkward, undefined stage where, yes, we've been on a few dates, but really, what's that mean?
1: What does it all mean? It means we're taking things one day at a time. That's what I said. More or less. Most of more.
0: Well... Sarah can't stop digging herself in deeper. As an experienced insurance investigator and recovery agent, she should understand about the use of the uncomfortable and awkward circumstance and the uncomfortable and awkward silence. It's a technique or tactic, if you prefer, that's taught not only to law enforcement, but also to professional salespeople. Because when people are made uncomfortable about a circumstance, they tend to want to explain it. When confronted with silence, when they expect the other person to speak, they tend to want to break the silence and the awkwardness. And when they talk, they tend to say things that they might not otherwise say. When a salesman uses the techniques, the end goal is to get the customer to essentially negotiate against themselves or convince themselves that this product, this thing that is being sold is what they want by just letting them convince themselves. Now, when law enforcement uses the technique, the end goal is obviously to get the person being questioned to say something that can be used against them. And like I said, Sarah should not only be familiar with these techniques, she, I would think, had been taught them. And she certainly would employ them herself when interviewing people while pursuing missing items. And she's usually sharper than this. So I'm guessing that the situation is on the high end of the awkward scale for her. And that's what she's reacting to. Anyway, after Sarah's moment of babbling, Peter gets a text about the case and Sarah takes the opportunity to take her leave. Peter tells Neil that he should get dressed and Peter helps himself to the breakfast that has been abandoned on the table. Next, we see Peter, Neil, and a team of agents, including Diana, approach an apartment where apparently their suspect seems to be holed up. As they do so, Peter is giving a rundown on their suspect. Skilled forger, safe cracker lots of panache, and only 20 years old. Maybe the next Neil Caffrey. When Neil dismisses the comparison saying, this guy's just a hacker, Peter corrects himself by saying, okay, well, maybe he's the Neil Caffrey for the new millennia. Neil sourly mumbles that when he was 20, he didn't get caught. Diana says they've definitely traced a guy to this apartment, and they're pretty sure he's there because they can see moving shadows through the gap between the bottom of the door and the threshold. Peter lets Diana use the battering ram to break the door open because apparently she either loves doing it or she's never had the chance to do it before and she's just been itching for that opportunity. She breaks down the door, the team floods the room, and they discover no one's there. The moving shadow was caused by a vase set on top of a Roomba robot vacuum. Peter and Diana joke about the vacuum, suggesting that maybe they should cuff it and hold it for questioning and Peter seems somewhat admiring of their suspect's ingenuity. Neil seems annoyed by Peter's admiration. As they search the room, looking for clues as to their suspect's escape route and possible destination, Neil comments that Peter seems to be enjoying the situation. Peter replies that he loves tracking smart criminals, and he misses the challenge now that he's no longer pursuing Neil. But Neil isn't appreciative of the situation, especially given that their suspect is now being compared to him. His response to Peter is that all their suspect's done is a few mildly impressive forgeries allegedly cracked a safe and stuck a vase on a Roomba. From the next room, Diana calls out to Peter, telling him uh, he needs to come see something that she's found. There, on the wall, is a large collection of photos of their suspect displaying some of the booty from his crimes and each photo showing him in various disguises, but all feature him wearing a hoodie. The photos are grouped and arranged to spell out F-B-I. Peter rhetorically asks Neil if it's a completely random arrangement of photographs. Looking at the photos and the arrangement, Neil is now officially impressed. Admiringly, he acknowledges maybe he is good. We have a time jump, and now we see Neil at the dining table in his apartment, studying a file when there's a knock on the door. In iambic pentameter, Mozzie enters with a camera and suggests that he's there to steal Neil's soul, or at least part of it, and makes a rather obtuse comment about how he's always found the superstition annoyingly inconsistent. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about the idea that a camera can capture one's soul, or of the notion that one's soul can be broken down into parts and that the camera could capture one part of that soul. But either way, he's there with an idea
1: now while i am disappointed we haven't been able to recover peter's partial list of our treasures there is a silver lining it gives us time to perfectly prepare for our escape mm, starting with passports how long do our aliases usually last peter cut on nick Halden in two months steve survived for a year Imagine not having to look over our shoulders, not having to memorize a new date of birth every few months. I know where you're going with this, Moss. A permanent identity that the FBI can never crack requires the birth certificate for a dead infant. I'm not doing it. What if there was a way to do it that wasn't so horrifying? How's it work? You'll be stepping into someone else's shoes, even though they or their shoes never existed. If there is a way,
0: I'm in. We've seen in the past that Neil and Mozzie both have soft spots for kids, but apparently they draw the line in different places. I get the impression from this exchange that Mozzie may have talked to Neil sometime in the past about using the birth certificate of a deceased infant born around the same time as himself to create a fake identity, or maybe he's at least mentioned the possibility in passing. And if this is the case, then this would suggest that Mozzie has no problem with the concept. And in a way, it makes sense. I mean, a deceased infant is already dead. The recipient of the fake identity didn't cause the death. And since the child is deceased, nothing they do with that child's name and birth certificate can harm that child. As the saying goes, no harm, no foul. Neil's objection may simply be because the idea of assuming a deceased child's identity is creepy. But given what we've seen from Neil his character, and his sense of honor, slightly skewed though it may be, I think it's more a matter of him feeling that it's disrespectful to the child and their family. But anyway, we have another time jump, and we are now in the conference room at the FBI where Peter is briefing the team. Their suspect is named Scott Rivers, using the photos taken from the wall at the apartment that they had previously traced to him. They've been able to link seven of the items in the photos to recent crimes. They have a warrant for his arrest, but he won't be easy to track down as Scott Rivers has a fondness for disguises. Diana asks Neil why he never used disguises, and I think she's sincere in her question. She could have used it as an opportunity to be sarcastic or teasing, but the way she asks seems genuinely curious. Neil, still smarting at having their suspect compared to himself, sounds somewhat disapproving when he says that the right smile works just as well. And besides, you don't have to worry that your mustache is on straight which is apparently something that our young thief was none too careful about. We don't see it in the photos all that well, but apparently Neil did. When Jones mentions that this kid did the Hartford Mansion job, Neil is sarcastic in response. Ignoring Neil's sour disposition, Peter says that their suspect steals items of incredible excess from the wealthy, things such as a half-million-dollar pair of sunglasses, a solid gold toilet brush holder, and so on. His signature is that he leaves a card behind informing the victim that a donation has been made in their name to a charity. Each time, it's a different charity. And yes, he actually makes the donations. Neil snarkily remarks that this Robin Hoodie robs from the rich and gives some to the poor. Peter repeats Robin Hoodie as a question. Jones comments that he likes it. Neil quickly regrets having made the pun. He says, No, no, please don't. No, don't call him that. Diana points out that. Hey, he's the one who came up with the name. After Neil insists that Robin Hoodie was nothing more than a bad joke and that no one should repeat it, Peter asks for his assessment of their suspect. And Neil flippantly says, what's to say? He's a kid. He likes shiny things, and he steals them. But that's not good enough for Peter, who gives Neil the evil eye. Neil, responding to the evil eye, more seriously continues, saying that, well, he's never had much money, but he was around people who did, and he resents them. He's got morals. The donation cards are his way of justifying the thefts, and he uses the donation cards to tell his victims how they should spend their money. Neil also says that their thief is cocky, and almost getting caught won't stop him. Peter asks if he will get bolder, and Neil's response is, that's what he himself did. Now I've got a couple of slight problems with Neil's analysis. He's got morals. The donation cards are a way to justify his thefts, and he's using the donation cards to tell his victims how they should spend their money. Well, okay, let's talk about the he's got morals and the donation cards are a way to justify his thefts. He's half right. Robin Hood is using the donation cards to justify his thefts, but the problem is with the he's got morals part. He's trying to justify his thefts with the donations, not because he has morals, but because he recognizes that theft is, by definition, an immoral act. He's trying to divert attention from his immoral acts. He's doing this by giving away some of the money to the charities and pretending that or, or trying to lead people to come to the conclusion that it's okay for him to be stealing because he's giving some of that money to charity. He's doing a good thing with that money. And the problem is that it, it, it all goes back to that concept that we discussed uh, back in season one, episode four, Flip of the Coin, the concept of the fruit of the poisonous tree. If you remember in that discussion, the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine makes evidence Inadmissible in court if it was derived from evidence that was illegally obtained. And really the same concept applies here. Or put it another way, a moral result can never come from an immoral act. You cannot claim that your immoral act of theft, taking someone else's property that you have no right to, is somehow moral or made moral by the fact that you use some of that money that you took from them, some of that property you took from them, for so-called moral purposes. Another problem is the bit about how the thief is using the donation cards to tell his victims how they should spend their money. Neil seems to accept as a given that this is somehow a good thing. The fact is that no matter how much you, I, or anybody else might be offended about how someone spends their money, it's their money. It's their money. They earned it. They possess it. It is Owned by them, it's their choice how to spend it. It's their money. They earned it. Whether it be by labor or investment, they earned it. It's their right to decide how they spend their money. Yes, we can beg, plead, cajole, urge, encourage, and try to persuade them on how to use their money more wisely, more generously, more to... The service of others. And we have that right. But in the end, it's their money, not ours. And in the end, we do not have the right by means of theft, extortion, laws, or any other means to demand or force them to spend their money as we think they should, any more than they have the right to do the same to us. So that's another problem I've got with Neil's logic here or his reasoning, or his analysis. There's also a problem with the reference to Robin Hood. Now that I think about it, Neil's nickname suggests that in some way their suspect is like Robin Hood, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, and choosing his victims because they're rich and not doing the right things with their wealth. Except that's not what Robin Hood did. Yes, he robbed rich people but not because they were rich and because he didn't approve of what they were doing with their wealth. He robbed them because of how they acquired their wealth. In the story, King Richard was away. Uh, If I recall, he was leading his troops in battle. And the corrupt and evil Prince John took advantage of the situation by taking charge. And he and his corrupt and evil friends and the corrupt and evil officials, such as the Sheriff of Nottingham, began plundering the people of anything of value that wasn't nailed down leaving the people destitute. And if they resisted having their gold, their land, their possessions stolen by the corrupt nobility and their minions, they would be harshly dealt with, perhaps physically abused, perhaps accused of attempting to overthrow the crown and imprisoned for their alleged treason. Robin Hood targeted these people, these corrupt and evil people, whose wealth was stolen from the king's subjects. And what he was doing was recovering and returning to the people some of what had been stolen from them. So in a way, Robin Hood is a bit like Sarah Ellis. He's a recovery agent. The only reason Robin Hood was actually called a thief was because that's how Prince John and the corrupt officials and others who were robbing the people, that's how they wanted to spin it. Anyway, next we are at the Burke home and Peter and Neil are at the dining room table when Elizabeth arrives with a bag of groceries. Now, does it have anything to do with anything that she arrives with groceries? No, absolutely nothing. But it is a nice real-life detail. And they are in a fabric bag, not plastic or paper, which is an interesting detail considering that it wasn't until nine years after the episode aired that the use of paper bags was being discouraged by application of a fee, and the single-use plastic bags were not made illegal until that nine years period. So... Interesting detail. Elizabeth makes a comment about Peter getting a high score on Angry Birds, prompting Peter to comment to Neil, she knows you're here. Uh, I'll admit I don't get the connection between those two things. I, I don't recall anything in the previous episode that would make this make sense to me. I also don't understand Neil's comment about how someone has to stand up for those green pigs since I've never played the game. And in fact, I don't really play games at all. I have games, but I never seem to be able to find the time to set them up and play them, and I just never seem to have the patience to learn how to play them. So, anyway, side comment. Elizabeth asks about the case, and when Peter gives her the thumbnail, she also comments about the subject being a sort of young Neil Caffrey, an observation which, again, agitates Neil. When Peter calls their suspect Robin Hoodie, Elizabeth further agitates Neil by saying, eh, she likes the nickname. I'm wondering why these comparisons and comments to Neil bother him so much. I think part of it is his ego. I think he considers himself to be without pure and hates the idea that there's somebody out there who's good enough to draw comparisons to himself. I also think that he's bothered by having his past brought back up, in part because he's embarrassed about his failure, having been caught not once but twice by Peter And in part, I think he realizes that his attitude is changing and it's creating conflicting feelings. On the one hand, he recognizes how his life would have been different had he made different choices. And he somewhat regrets those choices now or regrets not having made those other choices. And he also recognizes how his life could be different if he makes different choices going forward. On the other hand, he recognizes that if he were given the chance to live his life over again, knowing what he does now, he's not sure he would make that different choice because part of him doesn't regret those choices, and he's not sure he wants to make different choices going forward. And I think we see this also later in the episode. But it's, it's obvious that this comparison of their suspect to himself really bothers him, really gets under his skin. Anyway, Peter is looking over the bank account information that their Robin Hoodie has been using to make his signature donations, and he points out a donation made the day before that doesn't seem to link up to a robbery. They realize that it links to something he hasn't stolen yet because he needs to make the donation to get the card that he then leaves at the scene of the theft, which means that the theft comes after the donation. They also realize that the organizations that are recipients of his donations have some sort of tie-in to what he steals. A donation to the Betty Ford Clinic connected to the theft of a half-million-dollar bottle of scotch. And, of course, the Betty Ford Clinic is a clinic for the treatment of alcohol and drug addiction, which was founded by former First Lady Betty Ford, who was herself an alcoholic. Anyway, this presently unlinked donation is to an organ donation charity. At first... Elizabeth flippantly suggests that maybe their suspect is going to steal a rare church organ. You know, a play on words. But they consider what organ donation makes them think of. They come up with driver's license, which is how most organ donors are identified. And this gets Elizabeth thinking, and she throws out the possibility of a motorcycle. What hospitals call donor cycles, apparently. The way I first took this is that people commonly donate motorcycles to organ donation fundraising events and so it became kind of a thing and so that's how the term came about but apparently it's a bit darker than that it seems that the term is a colloquialism used by medical staff originating probably in emergency rooms from emergency room personnel who often see motorcycle accident victims and it alludes to the fact that the high percentage of donated organs come from deceased motorcyclists Anyway, Peter decides that it's worth looking into and says that they should try to find out who owns the most expensive motorcycle in New York. Next, we jump to the home of Chad Stewart, who is a somewhat undefined character. Peter advises Mr. Stewart that it's likely that he's about to be the target of a theft. But Stewart doesn't take it seriously. Peter asks if he's recently purchased a high-end motorcycle, but Stewart says it's not just a motorcycle any more than the Queen of England, is just a rich old lady with a funny accent. He informs Peter that it is a $100,000 Confederate fighter, which is sort of correct. Specifically, it is a Confederate P-51 combat fighter. The company described the P-51 combat fighter as the world's first and only vehicle to be carved entirely from solid billet blocks of military-grade aluminum in a skeletal minimalism design That writer TJ Hinton of Topspeed.com described as steampunk with a dose of postmodern Americana. Each motorcycle is hand built and custom tailored for the purchaser. And there are, or there were actually two versions of the P 51 combat fighter the P 120, of which only 120 were built in 2011, and had a starting price of $72,000 while the R131 started at $100,000 and was in a limited edition. Only 10 silver and 10 black examples were sold of the R131 in 2011. Although Stewart may have owned the most expensive motorcycle in New York, the P-51 Combat Fighter is not the most expensive model the company makes. That distinction goes to the Wraith, with a starting list price of $155,000. As a point of interest... In 2017, the company rebranded as Curtis Motorcycle Company and announced that future models would be based on the electric motors built by Zero Motorcycles. The Confederate brand, including all prior designs, were sold, and the new owners of the brand began selling updated versions of the bikes and in 2020 completed the updating of the company as well with a new company name, Combat Motors. As a side note, as far as I've been able to determine, the Curtis Motorcycle brand, as of this date, September 2023, has not yet delivered a single unit, and as far as I can determine, does not expect to begin delivery on any models until 2024 at the earliest. 2017 to 2024, that's a long time for a company to go without selling a single product. Anyway, back in the episode, Peter tells Stuart that he'd like to set up a command post at the house. Stuart refuses, saying that he's got a party starting in a few hours to show off his new motorcycle. Peter points out that a party is a perfect opportunity for someone to steal the motorcycle. Stewart says, no, can't happen because he's got great security in place and no one could possibly steal anything from it. And nobody could possibly steal anything from around here. Neil takes up the challenge saying that he will bet Stewart that he can steal something, something maybe worth $10,000 in the next two minutes. And if he pulls it off, the bet is that Stewart has to let them come to the party Neil sticks his hand out to shake on the bet, and Stuart responds. And Neil puts his other hand on their linked hands, turning it into a double-handed handshake. Of course, Peter and the audience knows what's happening, but Stuart doesn't have a clue. And he still doesn't have a clue, even after they shake hands, because Neil just stands there. Stuart asks, is this some sort of a joke? He says Neil's running out of time, and he only has, he goes to look at his watch on his wrist, except it's not there. Neil has it. Question. How was Stuart supposed to know how much time was left, even if his watch had been on his wrist, since he didn't look at the watch to check the time at the beginning of the bet? If you don't know what time the bet started, you don't know what time it ends. Anyway, Stuart puts his hand out for the watch and says, okay, I get it. Neil taunts him just a little bit more, saying, hey, there was nothing in the bet about me having to give what I stole from you back. But Peter tells Neil, eh, give it back. Stuart says, okay, you can come. Then he decides, this is going to be impressive for his guests. He's so important that he's got the FBI at his beck and call. Peter says, nope, it's a covert operation. Covert, as in no one can know. Undercover. Stuart scoffs and essentially says, really? You're going to be in that suit? And you think no one's going to know that you're a Fed? As Stuart walks away, Peter comments to Neil that he'll be in the surveillance van for this one. Neil desperately asks, Can he be in the van as well? I would imagine that based on what we see here, Stewart does not have many friends. Maybe any friends at all. Hangers on, people who like to take advantage of him for his wealth and what it does for their image. But yeah, no friends. Anyway, we jump forward. The party started. Neil is there, Jones is there. And we learn that there are other agents distributed around the room. We quickly pick up on the fact that Chad Stewart is not only pointing out all the agents to his guests, but he's using their presence to try and build up his image as someone important, as well as to build up his ego. And he's also using the agents as his gophers. As a result of Stewart's blatant disregard for the need for secrecy and his disrespect of the agents, culminating in a minor humiliation for Jones, Clinton tells Neil that he's going to put the fear of God into Chad. Neil calls Peter over the earpiece radio, telling him that. Their cover's not going to last long. Peter urges him to make a quick ID of their suspect, do it as quick as possible, and suggests that Neil may have to look closely because they don't know what kind of disguise their suspect might be wearing. Neil quips that he'll keep an eye out for the crooked mustache, referencing his earlier comment. While Neil returns to scoping out the scene for their suspect, Diana asks Peter, Hey, if you're hunting Robin Hoodie, does that make you the sheriff of Nottingham? Back inside at the party, Neil's attention is momentarily diverted by a young woman that Chad Stewart has aimed at him. But after an in-ear reminder from Peter to stay on target, Neil spots a likely suspect. He's wearing over-the-ear headphones and what Neil calls a suit hoodie. Peter says he doesn't even know what that means, and I'm not quite sure either. I'm thinking Neil just sort of made that up on the spot because looking at it, I'm not sure that it's actually a suit with a hoodie attached to it. Looking at it up close, it really looks like Scott is wearing a hoodie underneath a suit, but that's probably neither here nor there. Peter directs Neil to confirm that it's Scott, and then Jones will move in to make the arrest. Neil moves to stand beside Scott, who's still wearing his headphones, and Neil says, you are in so far over your head, and you have no idea, do you? I almost wonder if Neil isn't in a sense, talking to his younger self in the persona of Scott Rivers, because he had to know that between the headphones and the background noise at the party, Scott couldn't hear him. But even though Scott couldn't hear him, he does realize that Neil may have been saying something to him, so he takes off the headphones to converse. Neil says that he's just there to admire the bike. Scott plays ignorance, saying it looks expensive, and Neil says, yep, hundred twenty grand." After a moment, Scott asks, have we met? I've seen you somewhere before. Peter sends everyone a heads up to be ready to move in case Neil has been made. Neil tries to explain the familiarity by suggesting that Scott saw him at Chad's party the previous week. When Scott says no, he wasn't there, Neil carries on with the story saying, Man, you missed out. They had mermaids. I mean, literally, girls wearing tails and nothing else. Scott shakes his head and sorrowfully says, All he has for this party is a motorcycle? Neil points out that it isn't an ordinary motorcycle, nor just an expensive motorcycle for the sake of being expensive. It's a carbon fiber and a titanium chassis, 1966 CC engine. As they're talking, a tall, slender young woman joins them and adds to Neil's description, saying the top speed of the bike is 260 kilometers per hour, that's 161 miles per hour, and that the bike is not remotely street legal. Now, first of all, I'll point out that the information given here about the construction of the bike doesn't entirely line up with what I have found online from the company about the construction of that bike, specifically the titanium. Now, the other thing is that I'm not sure the last bit about not being remotely street legal is correct. Nothing I found specifically states that the bike was not street legal. And in fact, I found several references which mention it as being street legal and others which seem to imply that it's street legal. Now, perhaps there was a version which was available that was intended strictly for track use and omitted some of the required items to make it street legal. But that would suggest that it would be no great achievement to make those units street legal, since they would be built based off of the street legal version and simply have those items omitted, which could then be put back on later. And, of course, this would all make that comment about the bike being not remotely street legal more in the terms of a hyperbolic statement than a factual statement. Anyway, after Neil comments that the bike is really more of a work of art on two wheels, the woman introduces herself to Scott. Her name is Shannon. Scott acknowledges her simply with "Hey." Neil steps away and informs Peter it's him. One of the big clues, a beautiful girl just gave him her name and he didn't give one back. He also adds that there's something suspicious about the woman, and not just the fact that she seemed more interested in Scott than Neil. After keeping an eye on them for a moment, Neil sees the woman drop something into Scott's drink. Neil alerts Peter, runs over to Scott, and knocks the glass out of his hand. The woman begins to run, so Neil calls out to Jones to stop her. Peter alerts the team to lock down all the exits, but as all attention is diverted toward the woman and securing the expected exits, we hear the sound of a motorcycle. On the bike, hoodie up, sunglasses on, it's Scott. He momentarily pulls down the shades, gives Neil a look, then puts the bike into gear, rides across the room, and out through a large plate glass window onto the street. Then he's gone. As Peter and Diana are making their way into the house from the van and everything is calming down after the excitement, Neil spots the donation card on the floor. He picks it up, and we see it reads, A donation has been made in your name, the Organ Donor Group. In the FBI interrogation room, Diana is questioning Shannon, but she's not giving Diana much. She is unemotional and unconcerned as she tells Diana she didn't buy the ring that contained the poison. It was given to her, and, I mean, after all, why would she ever refuse jewelry even though, you know, that particular ring was just a bit too gothic for her own tastes. How was she supposed to know there was poison inside? Outside the room, Peter and Neil are talking, and we learn that Shannon has been a suspect in a number of heists and robberies. But attempted murder? That's a new thing for her. The powder that she put in Scott's drink was potassium cyanide, which would have killed him in a matter of minutes. We also learn the connection between Shannon and Scott although we don't get it explained to us entirely. Shannon had a photograph of Scott. It seemed that one of his robbery victims had a security camera, which Scott had overlooked. As Neil is looking at the photo from the security camera in question, Neil says, that's just another reason he doesn't like disguises. It's too easy to get comfortable and make mistakes. And it also explains how Shannon found him. Peter says that it seems that they, whoever they is, Shannon and someone else, obviously, took measures into their own hands, but they'll compare the security photo to the photos that they recovered from Scott's previous location to try and find a photo of him wearing the same wig that he's wearing in the surveillance photo. And hopefully this will help them identify what he had stolen and maybe who he stole it from and who Shannon was working with or for who would have wanted Scott dead. But Neil is only partially listening. He is off in his own thoughts. What do you
1: think of him? He's a kid having the time of his life. He's impulsive, arrogant, and has no idea how deeply in over his head he is. OK, fine. He bears a cursory resemblance to me. Hmm. Think we can bring him back from the dark side? It's hard to do. I wonder what would have happened if I'd have caught you earlier. It wouldn't have made a difference, Peter. Khan is a rush. It's an addiction. And you need to hit rock bottom before you can change. When did you hit bottom? I never said I did.
0: There's an interesting contradiction here in Neil's comments, or maybe contrast is a better word. Neil seems concerned about Scott. And it seems his concern is about Scott's future and well-being. His comment about Scott having no idea how deeply in over his head he is tells us this. And his begrudging acknowledgement that Okay, he bears a cursory resemblance to me, suggests that he is viewing Scott's possible or likely future in view of his own past and future, or his own past, as it led to his present. And when Peter asks Neil if he thinks that they can bring Scott back from the dark side, Neil doesn't make any sort of suggestion, verbally, non-verbally, or any other way, to suggest that he disagrees with the basic assumption behind the question, that they do need to try to bring Scott back from the dark side. He simply says, it isn't an easy thing to do. When Peter asks, almost rhetorically, what would have been the result if he'd caught Neil earlier than he did? Neil's response is a mix of matter of fact and wistful. His words are matter of fact. It wouldn't have made a difference. And yet the tone of his voice seems to say, I kind of wish you had caught me sooner. And I kind of wish that it would have made a difference. In some ways, it's kind of like the same thing I experience when people ask me about hunting and fishing. People often assume that because of where I live, these are things that I do and enjoy. When I tell them I don't do either, that I've tried them and I don't enjoy them. There is this sense of wishing that I did enjoy doing those things because I recognize the benefits of doing so. And I recognize the enjoyment that others get out of doing those things. But I also recognize that no matter how much I might wish I could enjoy them and no matter how much I might try to force myself to do them or want to try to force myself to do them and enjoy them, it's not going to happen. There's no changing that. And I think that's a bit of what Neil's experiencing here. And again, I think he is looking at his past life as being acted out by Scott and he's seen Scott's future as illustrated by what happened in his own life by going down that same path that Scott is currently on. It's also interesting that Neil suggests, he doesn't come right out and say it, but he suggests that he never hit rock bottom. Seriously? I mean, Kate leaving him as an indirect result of his life's path wasn't rock bottom? Kate being killed as an indirect result of his life's path wasn't rock bottom? I mean, it sure looked like he was slammed on the rocks when those things happened. He was so battered by those things that he didn't even try to escape when he knew Peter was closing in. So if he hasn't hit rock bottom, what is rock bottom for this guy? I got to wonder. Back in the episode, we are in the conference room and Diana is showing Peter and Neil some photographs. They have linked three thefts to times that they know that he was wearing the wig that had been seen in the surveillance photo. And as compared to the other photos that they had gathered. One of those items was a diamond-encrusted bustier, which is interesting since one of the crimes their female suspect Shannon was suspected of being involved in was a diamond heist. Their immediate conclusion is that Scott stole what he thought was merely an expensive piece of jewelry, but which was really evidence of a crime that could put someone in jail for a very long time. And of course, by eliminating Scott, the diamond thieves obscure the trail that could lead back to them and their crime. While looking at the photo of Scott, in the boustier, he comments about the view out of the window of the office where the photo was taken, suggesting that maybe with a little bit of sleuthing of the skyline and the employment of some trigonometry, they might be able to figure out exactly which office in which building the photo was taken. But Diana has already had that same thought and has anticipated that request. She tells Peter that the office in question belongs to Thomas Carlyle, who just happened to be suspected in masterminding that same diamond heist that Shannon was suspected in. Peter adds that Carlisle had come up as a person of interest on more than one occasion and suggests that maybe a visit with the man might be in order. And while he and Diana are doing that, Neil should try to get some leads on Scott. Next, we see Mozzie and Neil walking through a courtyard of some small city park, it looks like. Mozzie reports that the street is a buzz due to the fact that someone, a kid, no name, is looking for Neil. And since he's already trying to get in touch with Neil, that could simplify things for him and the team. Neil tells Mozzie to get in touch with him. Mozzie says he will, but first, there's a little matter of identity to address. Mozzie and Neil meet a man named Alec. Alec is how they will get their new identities without birth certificates of deceased infants via something called identity farming. Now, according to Alec, years earlier, he had begun filing for birth certificates for babies who never actually existed. He treated these identities as if they were real, getting them library cards, opening bank accounts and their names, filling out tax returns, and so on. Neil admiringly says he created paper trails. Alec corrects him, saying, No, I created lives. Now, a question I had is, Is identity farming, as he describes it here, a real thing? Well, in 2008, Bruce Schneier proposed such a thing as a real possibility in an article for Wired Magazine. Schneier has been called a security guru by The Economist. He is the author of over a dozen books as well as hundreds of articles, essays, and academic papers. And his newsletter and blog, Schneier on Security, has been read by over 250,000 people. He's testified before Congress, is a frequent guest on television and radio, and has served on several government committees. Corey Doctorow, who is a Canadian-British blogger, journalist, and author who has also been the longtime co-editor of the blog Boing Boing, was living in London at the time that Schneier's Wired article conceptualizing identity farming was published. Doctorow wrote a companion piece to Schneier's post saying that He had noodled with the idea when his daughter was born. He noted that her birth certificate had been printed on an ordinary laser printer onto an ordinary sheet of paper. He took that birth certificate printed with an ordinary laser printer on an ordinary sheet of paper to the Canadian embassy along with a couple of photos that he said could have been of any baby. And a few weeks later, a Canadian passport arrived. He asked himself what if he were to do the same thing again the following year but this time with his own laser printer certificate. He could make a new identity for his daughter to step into in 20 years. Schneier's article is really a very interesting read, and I would recommend reading it. It's short, and it won't take you but a few minutes to read through that. And I'm recommending it for its societal implications more than the potential criminal implications. And I will have a link to that article in the show notes. Anyway, back in the episode, Alec gives Neil the documents for his new identity. Alec tells him his new name is Victor. When Neil expresses uncertainty, saying he doesn't know if he's really a Victor, Alec cuts him off, saying, Yes, you are. Strong-willed. So stubborn growing up. And he's your age. Neil looks at the documents and realizes that the name on them is Victor Moreau. The same surname as Kate. Neil looks at Mozzie with a somewhat stunned look and asks, did you plan this? Mozzie's also somewhat stunned and suggests that maybe it's destiny. Alec tells Neil goodbye and kisses him on the cheeks in farewell. Then Alec turns to Mozzie, hands him his new identity and tells him, you are now Bob. I never liked you. Mozzie's obviously hurt by this, so Neil tries to comfort him by telling Bob that he likes him. We jump to Carlyle's office where Peter and Diana are waiting for him to arrive. Peter is comparing the view to what was depicted in the photo that they have, while Diana recites a partial inventory of the items in the room, commenting that Carlisle can't seem to settle on a theme. But Peter points out the theme. Everything is really expensive. Carlisle shows up and immediately brings up the diamond heist of the previous year, stating that the FBI had already hassled him enough about it and they haven't found anything to connect him with it. Peter assures him that no, this is not about the heist. It's just a friendly visit. While Carlyle pours himself a drink, Peter notes the presence of a very large safe. Carlisle says it's brand new and the most expensive model they had. Trying to do a little fishing, Diana asks if there's any particular reason why Carlyle might need a new safe. Carlyle says, well, you know, a man in his position, people try to steal from him all the time. Instead of working their way up like he did, they try to take shortcuts, taking what isn't theirs. Diana wonders out loud if anyone has stolen anything from him recently. Carlyle laughs, joking that, no, if they had, they would regret it. Because, you know, the FBI would arrest them, of course. Peter says, of course. That's why they're here. Diana shows Carlisle a photo of Scott and asks if he recognizes him. Carlisle looks at it, says no, asks what he's done. Peter returns Carlisle's words to him. He took a shortcut, took some things that weren't his. They tell Carlisle that Scott's been robbing wealthy people in the area to collect items of extravagance. And Carlisle certainly fits the bill. One of Carlisle's assistants enters, whispers something into his ear, prompting Carlisle to tell Peter and Diana that he has to leave. As the two of them are leaving, they are exchanging their conclusions about Carlisle, with Peter commenting that Carlisle is just the sort of guy who would be stupid enough to put stolen diamonds on a bustier. Next, we see that Mozzie has found Scott Rivers, and he is bringing him to meet with Neil. Scott seems pleased at the prospect of meeting Neil. He assumes that Mozzie works for Neil, but Mozzie corrects that mistake, saying that he works with him, sort of as a mentor. Okay, well... Really, I taught him everything he knows. Scott questions this, asking, Well, if that's true, how come I've never heard of you? To which Mozzie responds, Exactly. As they are approaching the meeting point, Neil calls and tells Mozzie that he and Scott are being followed. By Carlisle. Neil tells Mozzie that he needs to stall Carlisle. Mozzie asks Scott if he's ever pulled a Scrooge McDuck. But Scott doesn't know what that is. Mozzie says it starts by hacking... An ATM by exploiting an unpatched security flaw in their firmware which gives admin access. Then the machine is put into a test loop which causes the machine to start spitting out money. And of course people start running up to help themselves to the money, at which point it's time to start running, letting the money grabbers present an obstacle for their tail. Mozzie sticks around presumably to make sure that Carlisle gets delayed as much as possible while Scott takes off running. Scott runs around a corner where Neil just happens to be, and Neil tells him to slow down. Once you get some distance, it's better to blend in. Scott apologizes, saying he doesn't think clearly when people are trying to kill him. And Neil tells him to never apologize unless he's running a con. Scott asks if the FBI are there. Neil says no, but he should turn himself in. Scott's surprised. He says, You're Neil Caffrey. Are you really telling me there isn't another way? We jump to Neil's apartment. Scott is out on the balcony. Sarah, Mozzie, and Neil are inside. Sarah is expressing some astonishment and displeasure at the fact that Neil brought a wanted fugitive home. Mozzie, helpfully, but not really so helpfully, interjects that it's not like it's the first time. Neal is undecided what to do. Mozzie insists that they should help Scott because he's one of their own. They have to help him because it's part of the code. And besides, he kind of likes him. He reminds him of a young, and Neil stops him, not wanting to hear yet another person comment about how Scott reminds them of a young Neil Caffrey. But Mozzie says, no, he had himself in mind. Neil smiles, probably grateful for Mozzie's unique view of things or his consideration. Then he asks Sarah what she thinks he should do about Scott. Mozzie is offended that Neil should ask her after he's already told Neil. They need to help Scott. After all, she's not one of them, so her opinion doesn't count. But Sarah surprises Mozzie by agreeing that they should help Scott. Mozzie instantly flips and calls her a brilliant woman. But she clarifies her advice, saying they should help him get out of trouble, then convince him to turn himself in. Mozzie flips again, now calling Sarah's advice absurd. Mozzie argues that Neil owes it to Scott to give him a chance to live a life, make his mark on the world. Sarah counters that this is Neil's chance to show him that there's another way. Neil points out that he's not exactly a role model, but Sarah encourages Neal by saying that he's probably the closest thing that Scott has at the moment. Scott comes in from the balcony, now without the false mustache and beard he's been sporting up till now, and he seems to have lost six to eight years off his age as a result. Not only does he look younger, he looks like someone who is out of ideas.
1: I need your help. I never stole from anybody who didn't deserve it. Never hurt anyone. I figured you, of all people, would understand that.
0: Again, Scott's trying to justify himself by saying that he never stole from anybody who didn't deserve it. Well, realistically, morally, legally, technically, nobody really deserves to have something that they possess, that they own, stolen. The only possible exception being people who possess things that they themselves stole in the first place. So, again, Scott is just trying to justify his actions by shifting responsibility to others. They deserve to be robbed. Anyway, enough on that horse. It seems that Scott not only knew about Neil Caffrey before now, but he's also viewed him as kind of a kindred spirit and a role model, though not necessarily in the same sense that Sarah meant. Well, after a few moments, Neil makes a decision. He tells the assembled throng that the first thing they need to do is get Carlyle off of Scott's back. We jump to the next morning. Scott and Sarah are on the balcony having breakfast while Mozzie is proudly showing off his new Bob ID. Neil looks closely at it and calls it truly amazing work. Now, two things about this. First of all, I'm thinking that he is just trying to make Mozzie feel good because I'm sure that Neil has already looked at his identity documents and already knew the level of workmanship. Also, it just occurred to me that maybe the reason that Alec gave Mozzie the name Bob is because he didn't like him and nobody liked Microsoft Bob. I, I don't know if you remember, this was like 25, 30 years ago. Microsoft came out with something called Bob and it was supposed to be some sort of an assistant to help you do things with Microsoft Office help you write documents, help you write a resume. And it was the most stupid-looking, most obnoxious little thing. Uh, It it eventually turned into Clippy, which you may remember. But nobody liked Bob. Nobody really liked Clippy, which was, as I said, the successor to Bob. So I wonder if that's not why. I kind of wonder if that's maybe not a reference to Microsoft Bob that the writer of this episode slipped in. That would be interesting to know. Anyway, Mozzie excitedly says that with these IDs, no one's ever going to be able to find them, and they can take off to paradise as soon as they can get the list away from the FBI or get a copy so they know what is and isn't safe to sell. Neil points out that all of Mozzie's plans are contingent upon the two of them not getting arrested for harboring a fugitive or Scott not pinning all of everything that's going on onto them. Mozzie scoffs at the idea that Scott might turn on them, insisting that he senses good in him. When Neil sarcastically calls him Qui-Gon Jin, a reference to a Star Wars character from one of the movies, although don't ask me which one, because I basically gave up on any Star Wars movie other than the original trilogy after seeing Chapter 1, Mozzie hedges his endorsement of Scott a bit by saying, well, maybe not good, but at least chaotic good. Whatever that means. At the same time, Peter calls Neil asking if there's any word on the street as to Scott's location. Neil says there's nothing. Peter says that they need to find him soon, and that catching Scott could be the key to bringing down Carlisle as well. Peter also seems to sense that something is up, because he asks Neil if he's got something more important that he's working on. And I would say he sensed something was up, because I certainly didn't hear anything in Neil's voice, or what he said, that I would have taken as a clue that there was something else going on. But Peter somehow figured it out. He sensed it. Neil admits that, yes, he's distracted, but he puts it down to Sarah being there. Not totally untrue. Peter checks Neil's ankle location as they continue talking, with Peter telling Neil that he likes the two of them together, and that she's a good influence on him. But he warns Neil about being a bad influence on her. After Neil hangs up from Peter Sarah comes in and asks if there's a plan yet. Listen,
1: are you sure you want to be involved with this? Whatever we end up doing, it probably won't be legal.
0: All right, what I do occasionally falls in the same gray area.
1: This won't be gray. I have stretched more laws than I care to admit. That's what I like about you. Yeah? I'm usually returning things to the rightful owner, though.
0: Now, generally, I think of gray areas as meaning, or the term gray areas, meaning an area where what is and isn't acceptable or allowed is not necessarily clearly defined. One of those things where you could argue something both ways. And I think stretching a law is more along the lines of playing semantical games to make a case that something that's not really legal, or at least not within the spirit or intent of the law seems legal I mean, think back to the pilot where Peter claimed exigent circumstances to allow him to enter the warehouse where Curtis Hagan was printing the counterfeit bonds. That's stretching the law because really he reinterpreted this, the facts around the situation to create the appearance of legitimacy for his argument of exigent circumstances. Even though these are kind of different things, the logic behind both of them is essentially the same. I know what I'm doing really isn't within the scope of what's allowable, but I'm going to do it anyway, because if I'm successful, I can get away with it. People will just kind of turn a blind eye and it's easier to get forgiveness after the fact than permission before the fact. And I think we already knew that Sarah would play the gray areas. So I don't think it's any real surprise that she's willing to stretch things as well. But I think this does show a couple of things. First, that Neil wasn't certain if Sarah was going to be more on the the by-the-book side like Peter or more on the fast and loose side like himself. Now, he still doesn't know exactly how far she'll go into those gray areas and how far she will stretch the law and the rules. But he at least now knows that she's willing to go quite a ways for a good cause. Second, I think it shows that He wasn't taking Sarah and what she would or would not do for granted. He didn't assume that just because she was there and she seemed to be okay, reluctant, but okay with Neil harboring a fugitive, that she would automatically be in on whatever plan they came up with. He gave her the opportunity to get out while the getting was good, even to the point of almost discouraging her from staying in. Anyway, her comments about how she was usually returning things to their rightful owners does give Neil an idea. Neil calls the group together and tells Scott to show him the diamonds. When Scott hesitates, Mozzie gets stern, reminding him, they got his keister off the hook, so don't start holding out on him now. Scott reluctantly goes to fetch the diamonds, and Neil asks Mozzie if he's still sure about Scott. Mozzie admits that, well, maybe not quite so much now. Scott unwraps the diamond-encrusted bustier, and it is uh, impressive not necessarily in the best sense of the word. Scott confirms that he cracked Carlisle's safe to get the piece and that he can do it again. The safe has an electronic keypad and his little black box does everything, including taking the art out of safe cracking, Neil says with some disgust. But Scott disagrees. His attitude is that the art is in his programming of the box, something he did himself. Well, the plan is to get Scott to go back into Carlisle's office, put Duboustier back into the safe and then anonymously tip off Peter that the diamonds can be found in that safe. Peter would be then able to arrest Carlyle for stealing the diamonds, which he did do in the first place. But Scott expresses some concern that they would be planting evidence. Well, they point out to him that since the Bustier had been in the safe to begin with, they're not planting evidence, they're simply returning evidence. And it would, in theory, be as if he never stole it. Well, maybe kind of true. From from the standpoint of the prosecution of Carlisle, it would be kind of true, as long as the defense attorney doesn't find out about it. If the defense attorney found out about it, yeah, all bets are off. Anyway, Mazzi astutely points out that the suit probably wouldn't see it that way, and Neil agrees that they need to keep the plan away from Peter. Scott brings up a critical flaw in the plan. Everyone will be watching out for him. Neil thinks about it for a moment, then turns to Sarah and asks just exactly how big was that gray area she was talking about. Back at the FBI, Diana comes into Peter's office. Peter's been keeping an eye on Neil's location. He's still at home and has been for a while. But Peter has a hunch that Neil's up to something. No, he's certain Neil's up to something. He just doesn't know what. He's thinking it has something to do with Scott, though. But he's going to let it play out because he thinks Neil might be working on some sort of plan. Diana says, well, he may be working on more than one sort of plan. She says that a few weeks previously, a Degas popped up on the black market. They don't know if it was one of the ones on the manifest because it was pulled after a couple of hours, but how many new Degas can there be? Peter pulls out the manifest and, thinking out loud, says it showed up the same day that D.C. art crimes came to visit, but it's probably just a coincidence. Except wait. The original manifest was supposed to be in D.C., sent there with Agent Matthews. So how did he get back to Peter? When did he get back to Peter? And what we see seems to have to be the original because there would be no purpose in the FBI creating a fake complete with burned edges and such. I don't think. And another thing, wouldn't there be at least one photocopy of the list somewhere? I mean, wouldn't Peter at least have kept a copy of that list for for him and Diana to work from? Now, granted, they don't want too many copies floating around because... That would increase the chances of Neil or Mozzie finding it or getting their hands on it in some manner. But not even one copy for Peter to work from? Uh, That just doesn't seem quite right. So either I completely missed something or somebody else did. If you know what I'm missing, let me know. Send me an email at whitecollaredpc at yahoo.com. Anyway, back in Neil's apartment, the group starts going over the plan. Then we begin cutting back and forth between them planning and them executing. Mozzie's job is to be their lookout, keeping an eye out for Carlisle. It's a weekend, so the only people in the building will be the security people. They will be concentrating on the penthouse, not so much on the lower floors where the telephone junction box is located, which is where they need to get Scott. The alarm system is state-of-the-art, and Scott says he can write an algorithm to avoid setting it off, but Neil says no, no need, because they're not going to set it off. The only real obstacles are the guards and a security door that opens from the inside and the cameras. Scott and Neil enter and approach the security door with Scott opening an umbrella and holding it up to block the view of the cameras while Neil uses Mozzie's air gun to blow out an access port in the door. He then slips a second umbrella through the access port. Then with the top of the umbrella on the inside, he opens it and then pulls it to press the emergency escape bar from the inside of the door. Neil then takes the umbrella that Scott is holding that blocks the camera, while Scott slips inside the door, closes it behind him, and replaces the access port plug. And they do this, or have to do all this, before the security guard shows up. Now the guard shows up and kicks Neil out of the building. But, mission accomplished. Scott is inside. Next, Sarah shows up wearing a long raincoat pulled tight around her she tells the guard that she's there for Mr. Carlisle. The guard says, he isn't here. Pulling open the raincoat and exposing her bustier encased figure, she says, I don't think you understand. I'm here for Mr. Carlyle. As in, I'm the evening's entertainment. The guard calls Carlisle's office, but Scott is hacked into the phone system and intercepts that call, playing Carlisle's assistant. And as his assistant, he instructs the guard to send her up. Then Scott sets the security cameras to loop video so that they won't be seen. Then he goes up to Carlisle's office where Sarah will be waiting to let him in. But once inside, the plan goes sideways. Scott's supposed to hack the electronic keypad on the safe, except that there isn't an electronic keypad, and it isn't the same safe. Sarah asks if that means he can't crack it. Scott admits that old school isn't really his style. Sarah says that cracking a safe in her bra isn't really her style either, but they have to adapt. So Sarah grabs a glass from a nearby table and begins to work on the safe. Neil is outside the building waiting for them when Peter walks up and surprises him. And Peter isn't too happy. He says, imagine my surprise when I checked and found out that you were right outside Carlisle's office. Neil assures Peter that he can explain. And Peter's response is basically, oh yeah, you're going to explain. Starting with Robin Hoodie, is he in there? Neil says, that's probably better if he doesn't answer that question. Peter wants to know better for whom, him or Neil. But Neil says, no, it's better for Scott. He has a plan, but it's essential that Peter not know anything about it. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that this goes back to the concept of the poisonous tree and tainted evidence. If Peter knows that they're committing a criminal act, breaking and entering and in a sense, planting evidence, because it had been removed, which leaves open to argument the notion that it wasn't really there in the first place, or that while it had been removed, it could have been altered in some way to make it something it wasn't originally. It makes any discovery of that evidence and the evidence itself problematic for Peter and later a prosecutor. Anyway, Peter lays into Neil, starting with declaring that he's not the sheriff of Nottingham, which Neil is clueless about since he was not involved in that conversation between Peter and Diana. And Peter goes on to say that he's not the bad guy, but Scott can't be allowed to run around like this. He's going to get somebody hurt starting with himself, and he needs to bring him in. Neil understands and asks Peter to give him an hour, and he thinks he can convince Scott to turn himself in. No, he doesn't think he can. He knows he can. Just at that moment, he gets a text from Sarah. I need you up here now. He tells Peter he has to go. Right now. Peter says, fine, but I'll be waiting right here, and when you come back, you better have him with you. Upstairs, Sarah lets Neil into the office, briefly explaining that Carlisle updated the safe. Scott has modified his cell phone to act as a stethoscope by increasing the mic sensitivity, but he keeps failing. He's hitting the cylinders, but something isn't right about it. Neil explains that's because the lock has false gates. Safe cracking booby traps. False gates are small grooves cut into sliders or disks of a combination lock mechanism that allows a locking pin to drop, giving the sensation of having hit the correct position. But it's not cut to the proper depth, so the locking pin doesn't drop into the correct position, which would allow the mechanism to move. Neil steps in and begins working the mechanism by touch, while Scott will help by working by sound. As they begin working on the safe, Mozzie calls Sarah. Sarah says they've hit a snag, but they're working on it. Mozzie says they need to get unsnagged because Carlisle is on his way up. Great. No pressure. Outside, Peter's talking to Jones, telling him to go ahead and come. But no need to rush. He's not expecting any trouble. Oh, wait. There's trouble. Go ahead and rush. It's Carlisle. He spotted him as well. Upstairs, Neil and Scott continue to work on the lock together. Sarah gets onto a computer that's there in the office to check out the security monitors and realizes that Carlisle is in the building. That's the bad news. The good news is that Peter's intercepted him. Scott asks Neil, why is the fed buying them time? Neil says, because it's Peter. As if that should totally explain things to Scott, who has no idea what Peter's motivation for anything would be at this point, other than capturing him. Down in the lobby, Peter tells Carlisle that he has a few more questions as follow-up from their meeting the other day, and Carlisle tries to put it off. But no, when Peter insists, he finally says, fine, let's go up to my office. Peter says, no, no, lobby's fine. The two of them get into a sort of power struggle about where to have this conversation, with Carlisle ultimately getting the upper hand by saying that unless he's under arrest, he'll only answer Peter's questions in his office, and. At that point, Peter doesn't really have much of a choice, so he says, after you. Upstairs, just as Sarah warns that Peter and Carlisle are on their way up, Neil announces that they've got it. He's pretty sure they've got it. He thinks they've got it. But they don't have time to try it again if they're wrong, so it's now or never. Neil tells Scott he can do the honors. Next, we see Carlisle and Peter coming into the office, which is now unoccupied. As Carlisle goes to the bar, Peter is looking around, trying to spot Neil, Scott, or Sarah, but they're not there. Peter starts the conversation by telling Carlisle he wants to talk about the diamond heist. Carlisle questions Peter right back, saying, I thought this was about some kid running around robbing people. Peter says, yeah, it was, but it got him thinking about what could possibly be in that safe that Carlisle is so proud of. Carlisle says, well, Peter's never going to know. It's uncrackable. Completely uncrackable, except, you know, when it isn't closed and secured. Peter pulls a pen out of his pocket and uses it to pull open the door, revealing the bustier. Carlisle is flabbergasted. When Peter says that those look like the diamonds he's been asking about, Carlisle insists those diamonds aren't his. Peter rhetorically asks, You're trying to tell me that someone broke into your office to crack an uncrackable safe because they just wanted to give you millions of dollars in diamonds? Nope, not buying it. You're under arrest. Carlyle seems to give in, but he is slowly moving his hand down to his desk. I'm guessing that he's got a gun in there. Jones guesses that he's got a gun in there. Yep, Jones apparently got delayed, but at least he and a few other agents got there just in time to have a beat on Carlisle and tell him, I wouldn't do that. Down on the street, we see Neil, Sarah, and Scott come out. Sarah is wrapped in her coat and comments that she'd like to put on something a little less breezy. So she takes off to find some clothes, leaving Neil and Scott to talk.
1: So what are you going to do now? Oh, come on. You didn't really think I was going to turn myself in, did you? I was hoping you would. Would you have if you were my age? No, <laughs> I wouldn't have. But this isn't about me. It's about Peter Burke. He's the smartest man I've ever known. He caught me and he will catch you. Only question is when. Nobody's that good. He is, Scott. If you turn yourself in now, he'll make you a deal. It's the best deal you're ever going to get. You know what? Keep running. Always looking over your shoulder, never slowing down long enough to share your life with anyone. Because you know that the second you do, that is when he will catch you. Let me help you, Scott.
0: What Scott asks Neil... Would you have turned yourself in when you were my age? And Neil says, no, but this isn't about me. It's about Peter Burke. He's not really incorrect, but he's also not really correct. I don't think it's really about Peter. He's just a secondary character in this story that Neil is trying to tell Scott. Mostly it's about how the now Neil is looking at Scott and seeing a younger version of himself. He's seen Scott go down the same paths that he went down, making the same decisions that he made and ultimately ending up in the same place that he's ended up. It's about the fact that just because Neil admits that he wouldn't have done something differently at that age, it doesn't mean that he doesn't realize now that it would have been better to have done something different at that age. There's a saying about how it's better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than your own, and I think he's trying to impart some wisdom that he's learned from his experiences to Scott and to get Scott to look ahead, to look at where the path leads Ultimately, not just to look at what's immediately in front of you. I think that's really what Neil's trying to do and say here, although I don't think he's being real clear about it. I'll I'll admit that. Anyway, Neil's attention is diverted when Peter and the team bring Carlisle out of the building, and that's all Scott needs to disappear, which he does, leaving Neil to try to explain to Peter. Back at the FBI, Neil comes into Peter's office. And he admits... I screwed up.
1: Yes, you did. But you helped get Carlisle off the streets. Mm. That's a good win. I actually thought I was getting through to him. <laughs> Disappointing, isn't it? Mm. You think they're listening and then they go off and do the opposite of what you say.
0: You do the best you can, but the outcome isn't always what you want, whether it's with your own kids with people you are trying to guide and mentor, whoever it is. Other people have a mind of their own, and they aren't always going to make the same decisions that you think that they should. Sometimes it's not about them making bad decisions. Sometimes it's only a matter of them not making the best decision or what we think is the best decision. But people who have been there and done that often have more and better information and a more objective view of a situation than the person who's right in the middle of it at the moment. But ultimately, they're going to do what they're going to do. But as long as you did your best, as long as you made every effort to guide them in the way that you recognize is best for them based on your own personal past experience, you did your best, and that's all you can do. And you can't blame yourself for what they ultimately do they make the choices and as long as they had all the information available to them that you could give them and they made the choice to do something different that was that's on them and i think that's what peter's trying to tell neil here but i also think he's talking to himself mourning the fact that he sees himself and neil are in kind of that same situation peter's been trying to get neil to follow the straight and narrow and he sees that neil seems to be trying But he also knows that there's still some bad decisions being made by Neil. And that whole thing about the sub-treasures, that's one of those. One of those bad decisions. But as they're talking, Peter sees Jones bring Scott in, with Scott in handcuffs. Jones says that Scott said he'd only turn himself into Neil. Scott looks at Peter, then Neil almost disbelievingly says, this is the guy that caught you? Neil says yes. Peter asks Scott if he still has the items he stole. And Scott's comeback is somewhat evasive. It depends. Which ones do you know about? Peter advises him that the more he cooperates, the better deal Peter can get for him. But he is going to have to do some jail time. There's no getting around that. Neil gestures to Peter, and Peter gets the message. Neil wants a few moments alone with Scott. Neil asks Scott what prompted him to turn himself in. Scott makes the excuse about how stealing stupid things from rich people was already getting boring. Or maybe it was because of what Neil said to him. He pauses and then adds, eh, whichever makes you feel better. So I'm going to say a combination of both things. Anyway, he thanks Neil and holds out his hand, which he can do now because he's partially slipped out of the handcuffs. Peter shakes his head with an air of resignation, calls Jones and says, cuff him again. Then there's a quiet, reflective moment between Neil and Peter to tie up
1: a loose end. Give him some time. People don't change overnight. Believe me. I know. I work with living proof of it. But they do change. You're not the sheriff of Nottingham. I know. I'm thinking more King Richard the Lionheart. I'll go with that. Good.
0: Back at Neil's apartment, Neil is alone, contemplating his new identity when there's a knock at the door. He quickly moves to hide his new identity documents in a cubby in the wall behind a picture. But in his haste, he neglects to get it closed completely. I've got to say that this doesn't strike me as a particularly good hiding place. It's too obvious. It doesn't have any apparent mechanism to prevent it from being opened. Yeah, it's definitely not up to Neil's usual standards. Anyway, the knock was Sarah. After Neil had stashed the documents, he lets her in. And she asks if she was interrupting anything. He replies that, no, he was just getting ready to take a shower. She asks, is that a statement or an invitation? Neil says yes to both. Sarah says she'll join him in a minute. Then Neil goes off to get the shower going, get ready. And then as she's getting ready to join Neil, she notices the picture on the wall. It's pulled out on one side, as if somebody had hidden something in a cubby behind it, but not gotten it completely closed. She pulls it open and spots Mozzie's hula doll. She takes it out, looks at it, and smiles at whatever it is that it makes her think of. She returns the doll to its hiding place, then feels around for something more. She grabs Neil's new identity passport, pulls it out, and as she studies it, a somewhat crestfallen look comes across her face. And that's where we leave the episode. As a reminder, you can visit www.whitecollaredpc.com and there you will find all the show notes, links for resources that I've used in researching some of the details behind this episode. And you will also find a link to the White Collar Fandom Group on Facebook, which I recommend. Again, thank you for listening, and please be sure and join me for the next episode as I share my thoughts on Season 2, Episode 7, Taking Account. Until then, take care
1: and God bless.